We are the Ballbusters. Your sports news podcast on Unbenched. Breaking the glass ceiling through sports. Welcome back to another week of Ballbusters. As usual, I'm your host, Casey. I'm joined by the lovely Christina, Krina, and Dua. Good morning, sunshines. How are we doing? We are very tired. Very tired. I'm so sleepy. Okay, cool. So let's bring some energy. Don't worry, I'm pretty sure we'll be all wide awake by the end of this episode because we actually have tons to cover from an all-out brawl in the NHL and someone's job being called for. We've got some NFL draft recapping to do, as well as Aaron Rodgers throwing a hissy fit. And Krina is going to get us started with updates from the basketball world. The basketball part of the segment today is not going to be quite as heavy or as interesting as everyone else. But nevertheless, we start with our Raptors update. The Raptors are... In a weird place. The last couple of games have been against the Nuggets, the Jazz, the Lakers, the Clippers. They have only won one of those games. There's a common theme from all of these games, and it's been that it's been a good or close game for three quarters, but it just happens to fall apart in the fourth. And part of this has been because of some inconsistency in which players are available. And we saw them with the Lakers game last Sunday when everything Lowry touched literally turned to gold, and he was able to make sure that the Raptors didn't entirely give up their 20 point lead when it was cut to six and when you have our players not playing a lot of minutes together this season it becomes very obvious that what we are missing is a healthy roster and what that means for our core and our bench I believe they're sitting in 11th right now they didn't beat the Clippers in the last game and the play-in is still reachable they have a game against the Wizards tonight as when we are recording and that is kind of going to determine whether or not we have a chance to make the play-in but I still think that I'd rather have the guys fully recover and develop in the off season, just kind of regroup, refresh. And, you know, this isn't even a tanking thing at this point. It's just, they've been through so much. There's so much inconsistency with the roster that at this point, give it up this season and start next season. They've been playing good basketball near the end. So there is some hope for how they're going to be next season. I think they will be a lot better next season. Um, ladies thoughts on the plan. Do you still want the Raptors to reach it or are you okay with, leaving it till next year I never wanted the Raptors to reach it as soon as we started the season with a losing record it was like hey wrap this up come back to Canada again we say it every week there's no point there's simply no point for them sticking around for the play-in because like what they're going to get through that and then get smoked in the first round of the real playoffs like come home for whatever reason they all miss the DVP like come let them drive on the DVP let's get stuck in some traffic and let's you know, forget that this season ever happened. No, literally exactly what Casey said. We're not going to go anywhere with this plan. What is the point? And I think a lot of people feel that way. And if you don't, maybe reevaluate your life's decisions. I think it's been a really hard season and coming home, they'd be able to take like as much time as they need to, you know, recuperate. Yeah, definitely. And One more thing that I want to talk about the Raptors, and it kind of ties into looking forward to next season, is our rookies. You know, we had Jalen Harris come in recently. He was excellent in that Clippers game. Just comes in, drills a three right away. 
which is just breath of fresh air. And I want to talk about Malachi because he, he just won the Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month for April, I believe. And I think that his willingness to take shots has improved a lot. And you can tell that his G League reps have really helped him. I mean, he often gets compared to Van Vliet, but I think that he deserves his own little spotlight into his development and his future is definitely exciting. He's very, very good. Dua, how are we feeling about Malachi? Okay, so we all know how I feel about this man. A Malachi baby, hit my line. <laughs> Kidding, but not really. His G League work is showing right now. Like you said, he's a shorter guy. He's around 6'1", which is like insane for me to say that he's a shorter guy, but he's 6'1". But he holds his own really well. And he's like a pass first kind of guy, but he can also get to the bucket and he scored double digits in 10 of his last 15 games. So all around, he's doing great. I think he definitely deserves Rookie of the Month. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the first guy on the wraps to get it since Norm in 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's the first time since 2016 with Norm. And then I think before that was JV in 2013. So exciting stuff. And I think that should get Raptors fans really excited for the future and for our young guys, because if they've done anything this season and for the trade season as well, they've gotten younger. And I think that's important going forward. So that's enough for a Raptors update. And then I just want to talk a little bit about the NBA in general with the plane and the playoffs approaching. Now, LeBron James had some comments on the play-in after the Lakers lost to the Raptors on Sunday, and he kind of criticized it and said, whoever came up with this idea needs to be fired. Now, after he said that, a bunch of reporters came out and pulled quotes from LeBron from earlier in the season when he was praising the play-in and saying, you know, you have these teams at the bottom, like Portland, Sacramento, why don't we just let them battle it out for the seventh and the eighth seed? But now that his team is in danger of falling, he doesn't like it anymore. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because there are certain teams that the NBA believes that will bring in higher TV ratings, for example, like the Lakers, the Celtics. And if they aren't performing as well as they have in past years, the whole point of this conversation is, are the plans good because we're talking about teams that we normally wouldn't talk about? Is that better? Like, what's better? Are the big names doing well or new names that are taking the league by storm? First of all, the whole TV ratings, that the Raptors do really great. But wait, the NBA doesn't believe in that insane. A concept. Anyways, I think the point of the NBA is to play basketball. And it's turned into who's going to make you the most money and what the most profitable team is. But can we just play basketball? I think with the concept of the play in this year where it gives the lower teams a chance to battle it out for the seventh or eighth seed, I think that's a lot better because you get to see teams that haven't necessarily been a part of the playoffs for a number of years for whatever reasons, rebuilds, like not just not doing great. You, know, you have all that. And I like it. I like it more than our previous format. LeBron's a basketball player. Love him. Love him so much. But he's an athlete and athletes tend to do this. Where And like we see it across all the sports, not just LeBron. We see it in hockey so much where athletes will favor something one day because it's helping out other teams that aren't doing as good. But the moment that it's their team that isn't doing as good, suddenly it's the end of the world. You see this a lot with 
the concept of the first seed playing the wild card in like our regular hockey playoff format, players will be praising it. And then the moment that they're the team in the wild card and they're playing the first seed, suddenly it's the end of the world. LeBron, he is one of the biggest names in this league. And when I hear comments like this, with someone with that status, maybe there should be a little bit more responsibility there and like more consistency in what you're telling the media. It doesn't make your team look good. It just makes you look whiny, in my opinion. I honestly, like I didn't have an opinion about the play at the beginning, but now I kind of like that I'm talking about teams that I normally wouldn't talk about. I feel like this is making the basketball crowd a lot smarter because they're viewing a lot more teams now in different styles and different plays and things like that. So overall, I think it's a good thing. And if the Lakers fall, they fall and we can watch it all burn down. <laughs> but anyway time. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that wraps up our nba segment i'm gonna pass it to casey for some nfl why thank you all right we're gonna start with a little bit of an nfl draft recap starting with obviously lawrence wilson go one two is anybody surprised no okay let's move on San Francisco came to their senses and drafted Trey Lance at number three. I am so happy for this kid. I love what he did in college. And I think he is such a good fit in that system and for what they want to do. If you watch a lot of the draft room stuff, you'll hear Kyle Shanahan being like, oh, it was you all along. And Trey Lance is obviously like, no, I'm not buying that. So I think that was that was pretty funny to see. Apparently, he was their guy all along and it was never Mac Jones. Was Kyle Shanahan saying that for the cameras? Quite possibly. So what I really like about this move is the 49ers can win on multiple fronts here. The plan at this point appears to be that him and Jimmy G will quote unquote compete for that starting spot. Although I would argue that Lance is competing against himself to start and Jimmy will serve as that guiding light, that mentor. But if the 49ers play their cards right, they can have Jimmy G start the season to up his trade stock because right now he isn't as valuable as I think he could if people are fresh off seeing him play just because of the injury issues. So if he can start for a little bit, play really well, and then when you're super confident that Lance can come in and dominate, you start listening to trade options for Jimmy G. And they'll get you a lot more than what they'll get you right now. That's where I think uh, San Fran can win on multiple fronts with having Lance is, is you can end up getting a package to probably insulate Lance with some better talent than what he has right now. Christina, do you have any thoughts, feelings, opinions on San Fran and Trey Lance being a new duo? I was watching Shanahan's press conference after round one. And then I remember um, I read an article and it was about what he was saying earlier on in the season, like something about January. And he was like, yeah, we're like looking at a guy who throws like Drew Brees and runs like Lamar Jackson. And the article was like, we should have known that wasn't going to be Mac Jones when like he said that. But yeah, I think he's he has the brain and he has the body of a promising star quarterback. So I think overall, it's a really good move and I'm happy for him. I think now would be a really good time for Shanahan to actually earn his nickname of the quarterback genius because I've seen people calling him that and I'm like, okay, but who, what quarterback has he molded in his image? And one other thing that I do feel is very important to mention before we move on from this 
Jimmy Garoppolo is still alive, throwing it back to Kyle Shanahan's quote of he couldn't guarantee that anyone would still be alive on Sunday. Everyone on the 49ers is still alive, well, kicking. They're all excited for 2021, as far as we know. Next quarterback taken, Justin Fields. So Justin Fields fell to 11 and is now a Chicago Bear after the Chicago Bears traded their 2022 first rounder, 2021 fifth rounder, and a 2022 fourth rounder to the Giants to move up nine spots to get their future QB. I screamed so loud when Chicago took him at 11 because he just kept falling and it was looking so promising that he would fall to 15 because we had passed all of the teams that arguably needed a quarterback, thinking of the Carolinas, the Denvers, the teams that heading into the draft, it was clear that their number one need was a QB. They had gone and Fields was still on the board. And I was just holding out against hope that he would fall to 15. But props to Chicago for making this move. I can't imagine the scrambling that they did to make this happen on time because the prospect of starting your season with Andy Dalton as your starting QB and Ryan Pace has still said that Andy Dalton is the starting QB and I think once these two guys work out side by side in camp that could change relatively quickly. The idea of taking Dalton and riding him as your 17 game starters is just a way of driving yourself to the unemployment office if you're Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace. So when Fields fell past those teams that needed a QB. It was probably all systems go in that draft room, making all the phone calls. How can we move up to get this kid? Does anyone else remember the last time Chicago drafted what was supposed to be the quarterback of the future, the savior, the bear to end all bears quarterbacks? Yeah, his name was Mitch Trubisky and he's in Buffalo after doing absolutely nothing in Chicago. Don't ruin Justin Fields, Matt Nagy. I'm begging you. I still hope Matt Nagy gets fired because I don't think he's the coach that can take Justin Fields and turn him into all that he can be, but I'm willing to give him the chance because I think Justin Fields is honestly the second best QB that was available in that draft. And I don't know many people who will disagree with me on that front. To see him fall to the fourth QB taken, the 11th spot total, I think is a steal, which we're going to talk about later, but Christina, what are your thoughts? Wait, didn't you predict that last week or did you end up saying it? I know it was in your notes, but I wasn't sure. I said that Fields would be the last QB taken and he wasn't. Almost, almost though. Yeah, almost. He fell further than he should have. Yeah, I didn't think he would be taken so late down in the draft. I guess I'm just wondering if the Bears have enough talent surrounding him. Yeah, they don't. (laughs) They don't. They have nothing. There's nothing in Chicago. But okay, yeah. maybe because I wouldn't be surprised if Chicago made this move and is now thinking they're going to be an attractive destination for free agents. Oh, and yeah. If guys have no trade clauses before taking fields, I'm not waving my no move clause to go to Chicago and what catch passes from Andy Dalton. Absolutely not. But if it's now, hey, you can move your no trade and you can go catch passes from Justin Fields in what looks like to be a renewed system that's probably a lot more likely and a lot more enticing same thing for free agents if you're a free agent before this no way in hell am I going to Chicago to have my career ruined by Matt Aggie but now with Justin Fields I think that probably might entice people a little bit more so I wouldn't be surprised if they're playing a little bit of chestnut checkers with this move and and hoping they're kind of going to start attracting some talent because currently there's nobody for 
fields to throw the ball to. Yeah, no, that definitely, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, I guess, like, he's there now, so (laughs) we'll see what happens. All right, and then the next quarterback taken, last quarterback taken in the first round, Mac Jones. The irony of my team taking the guy that I have done nothing but rag on since we started talking about the draft is not lost on me. Don't worry. All I'm going to say on that front is what I said on Twitter whenever people would be like, hey, how are you feeling? Because we all know how I felt about Mac Jones. I was not hot on this prospect. He's not Cam Newton. That's all I'm going to say in terms of how I feel about this move from a fan perspective. From an analyst perspective, I think this makes a lot of sense. The Patriots didn't move to get him. I think they were confident that if they were going to take a quarterback, this would be their guy. And for whatever reason, they were confident that he was going to fall to 15 and they they weren't going to have to give up anything to move up to go get him. He literally fell into their lap. Mac Jones is now a New England Patriot. What's really interesting is who's going to start? Because at this point, I don't think it's a question of who the starter is I think it's a question of what kind of offense does this team want to run because the offense that you're going to run for Mac Jones is a complete 180 than the offense that you're going to have to run for Cam Newton based on the simple fact that one of those quarterbacks could throw the ball and the other one can run they don't cross pollinate in terms of their ability to to do the other one we saw that with Cam Newton eight passing touchdowns to 10 interceptions if I'm Bill Belichick I'm telling Cam Newton, okay, you're a running back now. Like you're not, don't throw the ball. With that in mind, I would not be surprised to see Mac Jones be the day one starter because Mac Jones can slide into the offense that the Patriots were running for 20 years with Tom Brady, which is small ball, dick and dunk, take small chunks and just move up the field that way, as opposed to what we saw them try to implement with Cam Newton last year, which was try and go for the long ball, try and go for the running plays. And it just wasn't working. They were a very one-dimensional team. And you saw the coaching staff was having to coach a completely different game than they'd had to for 20 years. And it was apparent because they became a lot easier to shut down. So I think with Mac Jones, that gives Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick the opportunity to revert back to a system that they know works. Am I saying this kid is going to be the second coming of Tom Brady? Absolutely not. But I think he possesses a similar set of skills that when you combine them with the comfort zone of this coaching staff could create something that people might not be expecting. And on top of it all, the Patriots have gone out in free agency and acquired every weapon that they didn't have last season. We've now got tight ends with competent hands. We've got wide receivers that people have actually heard of. They've gone out and they've put the pieces in place to reestablish a passing game. And I think Mac Jones is the final piece of that puzzle because he's someone who can actually pass the ball. All right. So now we're going to move in to some draft superlatives, starting with the biggest steal of the draft. Are we surprised that I'm saying Justin Fields? No. Getting Justin Fields at 11 is highway robbery. He has the potential to be the best quarterback to ever put on the Chicago Bears jersey. And some would argue that the day he put one on right after being drafted, he was already the best quarterback to ever wear that shirt he has all the tools to be an NFL starter right now the arm the accuracy the athleticism the toughness the leadership you name it he has it he can walk into a locker room today and take command and really really own a team which is exactly what you need from a starting QB perspective especially when you're Chicago and you've been floundering in mediocrity for 
years. GM Pace still insists that Dalton is the starter, but again, watch these guys work out side by side in OTAs in practice. And I don't think it'll be very long before he's changing his opinion on that. I think Fields is in a good spot with a veteran like Dalton, who, yeah, sure, he was never lighting up the league, but he's been in the league a long time and he knows what it takes to be an NFL quarterback. So I think that guidance mixed with Fields' raw talent is enough to get this kid to start on day one. And if I'm Chicago at this point, you've got nothing to lose. Your jobs are already on the hot seat. Put the kid in and see what he can do. All right. Biggest shock. Has anyone heard of Alex Leatherwood until the day one of the draft? No. Uh, I don't even think the guys on the draft desk had heard of him. The Raiders called his name at 17. Why? That's a reach. When on consensus big boards, the highest he was ranked was 40. That's a second round pick at best, with many thinking that he still would have been available in the third round when the Raiders would have been also picking. So he spent most of his time at Bama as a left tackle. And going to Vegas, one of their few positions that are solidly owned by veterans is the left tackle spot, which is owned by Colton Miller. So it's likely that Leatherwood is going to need to move to guard. And according to draft predictions, there was a 69% chance that he would have been available when the Raiders were on the board next, which was at 43. So my question is why waste so high of a pick on someone who you're going to need to move him out of the position that he was so good at? And yes, I get it. They needed to draft linemen. But the fact of the matter is there were better ones available. Like Christian Derisaw, who went at 23, and Tevin Jenkins was still on the board. So if this is the position you wanted to address with your high pick, sure. But go out and get someone who played college in that position and has the potential to be a day one starter. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of people don't see Alex Leatherwood as someone who has the potential to do that. So a lot of people are saying that John Gruden loves football guys, guys who eat, breathe, sleep football. I guess Alex Leatherwood is a football guy, but so is everyone else that won in the first round. And if you're Vegas, you're not swimming in talent at any position at all, anywhere on the field. You are mediocre at best. So why at pick 17, you go and take someone who should have gone on day two Instead of, I don't even care if it's a position that you don't think you need, go out and get one of the wide receivers that was still on the board. Go out and get one of the defensive backs that was still on the board. It's not like you have a lot of them, and it's not like you should feel confident in any of those positions. So biggest shock by far, Raiders using pick 17 to take Alex Leatherwood, who I actually don't even know what he looks like. I just Googled him. He doesn't look like an Alex Leatherwood. I don't know how to explain that, but he just doesn't. Okay, so next, moving into some team awards and team, whatever the opposite of awards is, because I'm about to be real rude to somebody. The team with the best draft, I am going to actually like pull a little bit of a 180 here compared to what I have on my show notes doc and what I have on my personal notes doc. Originally, I was ready to give this to Miami because I think Miami had an excellent draft and not just because they drafted a Canadian. But I think the team that overall had the best draft day, or not draft day, sorry, draft three days because the NFL draft is a never-ending spectacle and we love it for that reason, exactly. 
The Atlanta Falcons, they came in and they're like, you know what? The 2021 NFL draft is not going to be a repeat of 28 to three. We are going to win this one and we're going to win it comfortably. And they started by getting Kyle Pitts on day one. Kyle Pitts is my favorite prospect in this draft. Everyone knows that. The unicorn. I love him. I can't wait to see him tear up NFL defenses. And I'm really happy they don't play the Patriots this year because he is as close to indefensible as I think you're going to get in a modern day NFL player. But it's what they did after night one that really solidified Atlanta as the team with the best draft. They went out and they looked at all of their needs and they addressed every single one. And they addressed every single one with quality players who have the possibility of impacting that lineup from the outset. So on night two, they added Richie Grant, who will most likely be able to step in and start at safety right away, which is a position they need some boosting in. And they also got Jalen Mayfield on day two, who adds much needed depth at guard. So he might not come in and be your starter right away, but I think they realize that they don't need that. They have really strong starters in that position, but that's a position where we saw it in the Super Bowl. If your starter goes down, you better have a backup ready to go because if not, your quarterback is going to be scrambling left, right, and center. And I don't think Matt Ryan is at an age anymore where he can be scrambling left, right, and center. He's not a Patrick Mahomes. So day three allowed them to bring in guys who will compete for roster spots in areas where they were crucially thin last season. So again, they've got starters on this team. And this is a team where we like to laugh at them because every week they found a new way to lose and it was them doing it to themselves. But the talent was there. The depth wasn't. So day three, one of my favorite picks, they picked up Taquan Graham, who has the quickness to go inside Grady Jarrett on the line and cause problems for opposing teams. I also love the selection of Adeda Kanbo Ogudenji, who, yes, he may not have elite speed, but he has the power and force to get it done on the rush, which is something that in the NFC South, we're going to see it a lot this season. The rush game is going to be crucial. And this is someone who can come in, even if it's just for a couple plays, and really make an impact. Avery Williams, who is a lethal kick returner, as well as a versatile defensive back. And Frank Darby round out their draft. And Darby, I really love because he has the potential to grow into a deep threat and be the heir to Julio's throne. And Julio Jones has been linked to trade rumors all offseason, but he is Atlanta's number one pass catching threat. So if they're able to bring in a guy built in the same image as Julio Jones to potentially take over for him, I think that is the best thing you can do other than bringing in Kyle Pitts. Christina, I know you had some thoughts. Yeah, so originally when I was looking at your notes, you had said Miami and my friend Ben is like a Dolphins fan and he was really, really happy about draft night. He did say he wanted Kyle Pitts, so I guess the Falcons did win drafting him, but Miami got both Jalen's, like Jalen Waddle, and then um, <laughs> I, I pointed that out to him too. I was like, yeah, they got both Jalen's. That's kind of cute. And Jalen Phillips. And Jalen Waddle's going to be great. He's just going to give Tua the support that he needs and make Miami even stronger. And I think Jalen Phillips is a really good edge rusher who actually I kind of wanted for the Bills because they needed an edge rusher. And it's funny because the Bills ended up getting Gregory Rousseau, who is the other Hurricanes edge, who Jalen Phillips outranked. So I guess that's a W for Miami, and we'll see what they do with that. I also find it really ironic, this is just completely off topic, that like me and Christina have a friend who's a Dolphins fan. I'm a Patriots fan, and she's a Bills fan. If anyone knows of any Jets fans that are still out there and still like open about their support of the Jets, I feel like we need to complete 
the AFC East friendship circle, but I genuinely don't know anyone who's an out in public Jets fan because at that point, why would you? embarrassing. Literally. (laughs) All right. Speaking of embarrassments, Houston, you're up. The worst draft of 2021, ladies and gentlemen, the Houston Texans, proving that they are still a dumpster fire even without Bill O'Brien. So the horribleness of their draft started with Bill O'Brien. When they traded their first and second round picks for Laramie Tunsil, sure, he put up great numbers, but that man was not worth a first and a second. I'm sorry, in no day and age should you have given up that for Laramie Tunsil. But anyways, Houston didn't pick until the third round. And this is a team that has issues at essentially every position, except arguably quarterback. Granted, they have a ton of moral and ethical issues with their quarterback, Deshaun Watson, who's facing 26 lawsuits, but that's a conversation for a different podcast. What need do they go out and address with their first pick of the 2021 draft? Quarterback, because of course, they went out and they drafted Davis Mills, who... Sure, good value in the third, but I don't understand why you would use your first pick to take a QB when you're adamant that Watson will start for you next year and you brought in Tyrod Taylor to back him up. I just feel there were so many other avenues you could, literally every single other position would have made more sense to use your first pick on because according to you, you have your quarterbacks for the next little bit. Do I think Deshaun Watson should play in the league again? No, but again, different podcast. So then after that, They addressed their need at receiver, but they gave up draft capital to go get Nico Collins, which makes no sense when you consider the state they're in when they need to rebuild that roster and they need those draft picks. There were other receivers that would have fallen to you that you could have gotten who were essentially the equivalent talent level of Nico Collins. So I don't get the logic in giving up such precious draft capital when you already had very little to go out and get someone who's mediocre and probably won't be an impact player for the next little bit what saves them from being like an absolute f grade failure is that they did get brevin jordan who has third round talent but was taken in the fifth i think that is an incredible pickup he's someone who i could see actually impacting the lineup from day one and the fact that you were able to get him so much later than what his projected value is i'll give that to you good job but the move up for wallow who can be solid in their current system is good as he's a 4-3 linebacker who will fit in the current defensive scheme that they've got going on in Houston. But I don't think he's ready to start. And with the way things go in Houston, who's to say that that system will be in place when he is ready to start? That's what I don't love about picking guys late in rounds who you're like, yeah, gonna fit great in my system. The NFL is so fickle when it comes to coaching and when it comes to systems and schemes that if something doesn't work almost immediately, we've seen GMs not hesitate to move on almost immediately. So to pick up a guy late in the draft and say, yeah, he fits in our system when who's to say that he's ready to start in that system, I just think is not the smartest move. And it's just the nail in the coffin of Houston, in my opinion, having the worst draft of 2021. But Christina, do you have any thoughts about your bills? How did they do? Yeah. Last week I said the Buffalo Bills were looking for a pass rusher, a running back, and we ended up getting Miami Hurricanes edge rusher, Gregory Rousseau, who 
Because we were picking at 30, I would say is a good pick. I really wanted Quiddy Pay, but he was taken a little earlier. And that's fine. His story, though, is really cool. Yeah, that's another thing that I really like about the draft is the fact that they kind of share the stories of all of the athletes. And I was telling uh, my dad about that when they were drafting, because do you remember last year's draft? They went out and they found every sob story they could. From yeah. I walked away <laughs> from night one of last year's draft depressed. Like it was every single guy. They just found someone in his family who died or they found someone who, it was so sad. So I was so happy this year that they were taking actually like uplifting and happy stories Mm -hmm. so I could watch the draft and not feel like the world was ending because the world was already ending. It was such a feel good show, I think. And then seeing the families within the living rooms and stuff on their couches all celebrating, it was just, it like warmed my heart. And so- Yeah, when Gregory Rousseau got picked, that was just the cutest thing ever, I think, with his family and how he was reacting. He's 6'7", with long arms, and 15.5 sacks in 2019, and he was projected to be a top prospect but opted out in 2020, which he said was because his parents were both frontline workers and he wanted to be there for them, which I think is pretty understandable. I saw a lot of Bill's Mafia getting upset or calling him dumb or, like, nonsensical for taking a year off, and after so many of them backed Josh Allen up after he spoke about his internal debate on whether or not to get the COVID vaccine on such a large platform. I'm not really surprised, but I'm a little bit disappointed in the mafia, which is hard to say because I love this fan base and I love this team and I do love Josh Allen too, but people saying like it's his choice and it's his body. When people are dying and you can do something to help save lives, it's not the kind of decision where you sit there and think, hmm, is this what's best for me? No, you think this is what's best for the country, for society, for the world. And then you get the jam vaccine. It shouldn't really be up for debate anyway. So just Bill's Mafia, having that take on Gregory Rousseau, taking you year off is a little bit insensitive. Life is more than just football. And Gregory Rousseau is a person, not just somebody who you watch on your TV run around. And I think he's going to do fuck. Sorry, I think he's going to do great <laughs> on the Bills. That wraps up the draft coverage. Come back next week when we'll probably make way too early predictions. But we are not done in NFL land. No, because Aaron Rodgers decided to throw a hissy fit on draft night. 32 kids were going to have the storylines be all about them. And Aaron Rodgers said, LOL, no. We are talking about me and only me as the reigning MVP would like. Hi, we're here to talk about you. Um, So the story broke that he was so disgruntled with his team that he wants out. It's come out that he has told teammates that he has no intention of playing another game for the Green Bay Packers, which, you know, is really ironic given that last I checked, he's not the GM and actually doesn't have any control over whether or not he plays in a Green Bay Packers uniform. I have opinions because I think as an athlete, you sign a contract for way too much money and you play out that contract. And I know that they are in contract negotiations for he wants a long-term extension and whatever, whatever. But the point is, is you are a Green Bay Packer and I get his disgruntledness because we all saw this last year. They went out and essentially drafted his replacement instead of drafting him any help which he arguably needed, but we saw this season, he has one of the greatest emerging tight ends in Robert Tanyan, Devontae Adams, 
He had an incredibly strong rushing game backing him up. I don't think he really had a reason to continue to be disgruntled when the reason your team didn't go to the Super Bowl, yeah, sure, your coach decided to kick a field goal. On the last play, you had a hallway to run in for a touchdown and you decided to throw the ball. That's on nobody but you. So if you're going to sit here and throw your hissy fit year after year about how unhappy you are, check yourself because this team has made it to two consecutive NFC championship games and they have choked two consecutive seasons. And at the end of the day, if you're going to be one of the greatest of all time, you're going to be the league MVP, you should be able to win one of those games on your own. And if you're the kind of player that gets to dictate where they go and when they go, you should be able to win games on your own. I'm not ragging on Aaron Rodgers' skill as a QB. I definitely think he is one of the greatest quarterbacks. What he's been able to do over his career, this is like consistency in what he's put out on the field is mesmerizing, is fantastic. I love watching him play. I hate that he plays in Green Bay because I hate Green Bay, but he's damn good at what he does. So with all eyes on Green Bay at 29, Who do they pick? A corner. Someone who arguably will also not help Aaron Rodgers. If I was Green Bay, here's what I would have done in the first round to just appease my problematic and prima donna of a quarterback. Just take a goddamn receiver. It's fine. Just do it. Move up to take a receiver. Because I think that honestly would have satisfied Aaron Rodgers because it would have shown that, hey, they're listening and they're trying to help him. But no, they take someone that plays on the other side of the ball, which I think was the death knell in this. Like, I don't I don't see this relationship being fixed beyond this point. They did go out and get him some arguable help in later rounds. But in terms of what they did in the first when all eyes were on them, I think just shows that they don't really care what Aaron Rodgers thinks. And they don't really think that he dictates the franchise as much as he thinks he does. After all this clears and everyone, you know, kind of clues in like, hey, he said he was really upset. And then you went out and drafted someone who will not help him at all. Their GM says that they won't trade Rodgers because obviously that's what he's going to say. And Matt LaFleur the head coach said that Rodgers is his guy and wants him to come back. If you're Green Bay, what do you do? You have someone who has apparently out and out said, I'm not coming back, but he hasn't said that publicly yet. This is all through reporters. This is all through cryptic tweets that he's liked. This is all through kind of what we've been hearing from everybody but Aaron Rodgers. That's my other thing with this is, fine, if you're so pissed off, step up to the mic and say it with your chest. Out of all of the sports, what I do know is that football is on TMZ sports the most. And I think this puts you in a really tough position because while you have all of this passion-driven stuff going on, you still have to be professional. This is still a job. You still signed a contract. You still work for them. You can't just out and out be like, yeah, I'm not going to play anymore. Even though like he has a contract with them. Imagine me going to my boss next week and be like, I'm not working another day of my five-month contract. I can't do that. Why can Aaron Rodgers do that? Because he's Aaron Rodgers. But do they have to listen? Absolutely not. Because he signed the goddamn contract. I think it's just so awkward. That's such an uncomfortable position to put Green Bay in. Like, he signed the contract. Legally, he's binded to the Green Bay Packers. So legally, he will be on the field as the first game. And uh, it's just going to make him look dumb. And it's just so awkward for everybody else. Like, it was so unnecessary. On NFL Network, they had Terry Bradshaw on 
And they asked him what he thought. And boy, oh boy, did he not hold back. Everyone's always like, yeah, quarterbacks stick together. Oh, no, 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 no. I believe the words weak and other insults that I'm not going to repeat were uttered out of uh, Terry Bradshaw's mouth. But I saw someone say like, okay, go out and acquire a veteran QB and start Jordan Love and force Aaron Rodgers to retire. If you're so unhappy, okay, retire. I dare you, which, you know, is a petty move. I've seen pettier happen in the NFL. So I think the soap opera in Green Bay is just getting started. I'm really excited to watch this unfold. But on that note, that is the end of our NFL coverage for this week. So now we're going to throw it to Dua for four pages of hockey notes. So here we go with some hockey. I'm going to start off with the Seattle Kraken. They are officially the NHL's 32nd franchise. The owners paid the league a total of 650 million big ones to join the league. They paid off their final fee this past week, so it officially allows them to make transactions and prepare for the expansion draft on July 21st. And I think we saw this with Vegas a couple of years ago in 2017, where they made a bunch of moves and acquired a bunch of players to be able to use as leverage during the expansion draft. And so maybe we'll see Seattle do the same thing, but they'll officially be starting their first season with the NHL later this year. This is all very exciting, but what I want to talk about is what their short form will be. I've been saying this forever, that it'll be the cracks, and that would be hilarious. I think it's one of the better team names in a league full of stupid names, those of which include the Montreal Canadiens, the Minnesota Wild, the New York Islanders, the Edmonton Oilers, the Vancouver Canucks, the Washington Capitals, and while I'm talking about politics-themed names, the Ottawa Senators. Why would you- I'm take- sorry, the Toronto Maple Leafs are a stupid oh, Wait for name. it. Wait for it. That better be on that list. Okay. Why would you take the weakest aspect of, can- of the Canadian government and name a subpar hockey team after it? And of course, you can't talk about bad names, like Casey said, without mentioning the Toronto Maple Leafs. I love my team. I really do. But they have a stupid name. One of my friends said to me that calling the Toronto Maple Leafs the Toronto Maple Leafs is like the equivalent of naming Arizona's team the Arizona Cactuses. Not cacti, but cactuses. Because the Leafs wanted to be every sport journalist's autocorrect nightmare. So that's my little thing about Seattle Kraken. But now we're moving on to something a little bit more serious. Tom Wilson. Haha. <laughs> if you follow the NHL at all, you know what's going on in the league right now in regards to Tom Wilson. And if you haven't, let me catch you up. On Monday, the New York Rangers and the Washington Capitals were playing at Madison Square Garden. And throughout the second period, you could tell that Tom Wilson was upset about a roughing call against him in the, early in the period. During a tangle in the crease, Pavel Buchnevich was face down on the ice in front of the net and Tom Wilson comes out of nowhere and shoves him further into the ice then continues to punch him in the head, his lower back, while he's lying defenseless on the ice. Ryan Strom sees this 
and grabs Wilson from behind. All of this results in an all-out brawl between the two teams. And at some point, Artemi Panarin gets into it with Wilson. And I've seen people on Twitter argue that Wilson didn't know he was fighting Panarin, but we all know he knew. You see that freaking head of hair, you know that's Artemi Panarin. He goes on to body slam a helmetless Panarin into the ice. If this doesn't seem insane to you, I implore you, go watch the fight. You'll understand how bad it is. In the end, we come out with an injured Panarin who won't play again for the rest of the year, which albeit is like three more games, but still, he's injured regardless. We don't know when he come back. It's classified as a lower body injury that has him out for the rest of the season and potentially longer. While this is bad, let's keep in mind, this could have been much, much worse. Wilson picked up a man who was not wearing a helmet and set him headfirst into the ice. This could have been much worse than me and you can even imagine. Panarin got involved because he was defending Gruchnevic and Strom, not because he was looking for a fight, but because he was standing by his teammates, which every athlete knows is something you always do. David Quinn, the Rangers head coach, said it best when he said, a line was crossed. Panarin didn't have his helmet on. He was vulnerable. He got hurt. And to me, there was an awful lot there to suspend Wilson. And there was definitely a lot of material to suspend Wilson, yet he wasn't suspended. Instead, a man that makes upward of $4.1 million a year got fined $5,000. Now, this is where it gets more twisted on the NHL's part, because this fine was in response to his original hit on Buchnevic. He was not reprimanded at all for body slamming Panarin onto the ice. I repeat, there was no action taken against Tom Wilson for throwing a helmetless man headfirst into the ice. Then the Rangers came out with a statement saying the New York Rangers are extremely disappointed that that Capitals forward Tom Wilson was not suspended for his horrifying act of violence at Madison Square Garden last night. Wilson is a repeat offender with a long history of these type of acts and we find it shocking that the NHL and their Department of Player Safety failed to take the appropriate action and suspend him indefinitely. Wilson's dangerous and reckless actions cause injury to Artemi Panarin that will prevent him from playing again this season. So also at the end, they called out the head of player safety, George Peros, and said that they believe he's unfit to continue his current role. All of this oddly reminds me of a true crime documentary where I watched that like a man wrote out a murder he was going to commit in detail, but didn't actually do it. And so the cops couldn't do anything because he hadn't committed the crime. And that's what I feel like is happening now. One day, Tom Wilson is going to do something during a game that's going to result in him missing 40 games, maybe an entire season. But the NHL can't do anything about what his actions might lead to in the future. What they can do is reprimand him for his what his actions have caused right now. And there's a long list of people, including the NHL, that are at fault for this. The first of them being the refs. Why in God's name was he not ejected from that game? While Artemi Panarin was sitting in the locker room being assessed for an injury, Tom Wilson scored a goal in the third. That had to be the biggest gut punch. Then... That continues to the Department of Player Safety. Player Safety literally has one job. Quite literally, you have one job to protect the players. Let's not forget how inconsistent they are when handing out punishments. Nazem Kadri got suspended for the rest of the Leafs playoff run and had a court hearing for a hit that's not nearly as bad as this. 
it was bad not nearly as bad as this one so if we need any indication of how well they do their job here it is if i'm player safety i'm looking at the fact that he's repeated the same offense so many times in their statement the rangers said that he's a repeat offender and they weren't wrong this is wilson's third fine in eight season the eight seasons which is not as high as his five suspensions in the last eight years three of those suspensions were for illegal hits to the head two for boarding the fact that they knew all of this they saw the hit on Buchnevik, they saw the hit on Panarin and then decided all of that wasn't worth suspending him proves that I can do George Paris's job better than he can. Lastly, I think hockey culture plays a huge hand in this. This league is known for being physical, but in a time where we actually are conscious of player safety and or like we claim to be we have this hockey culture that was built off of a game built around violent physicality and it's having an identity crisis it's clear the nhl is trying to maintain its roots of being rough and being a very like aggressive sport while trying to promote new talent and attract new fans i saw this on espn first but they can't have it both ways further the response to the fans is insane to me. People saying this should be allowed is quite literally insane. Nolani from Unbench tweeted, I think Twitter would be a much better place if all the Tom Wilson apologists stopped speaking and I couldn't have said it better myself. Seeing people on Twitter defend this man is insane. Also, you have one of the co-hosts of the biggest hockey podcast on the internet mocking fans who are calling Tom Wilson out on his shit is disgusting. Whitney from Spitting Chicklets is a prime example of how CTE impacts brain function, clearly. Then you have Biz Nasty basically saying all the same things as Wit without actually saying them, and it's just insane. But that will lead me to another tangent about how we hate Barstool and they can't hold players accountable because they're too busy sucking them off. Now, Usually, we record on Wednesday morning, but currently it is Thursday morning, and us not recording yesterday was a blessing in disguise because of everything that went down on Wednesday. So first off, the Rangers fired their GM, Jeff Gordon, and President John Davidson. Cards on the table, James Dolan, owner of the Rangers, he's known for his impulsive decisions. We've seen it with the Knicks, we've seen it with the Rangers. This all goes down less than 24 hours after that statement was released. We all know that statement didn't come from Dolan, didn't come from Davidson, didn't come from Gordon. So where is it coming from? A lot of people believe this firing had nothing to do with the statement or Tom Wilson. But in fact, because the Rangers rebuild is not going fast enough for Dolan, and he doesn't feel like he's been kept in the loop. It was just very poorly timed on his part, but like, are we surprised? This is James Dolan. So the positions are now being filled by Chris Drury. Moving back to the Tom Wilson situation, the Rangers and the Capitals went right at it during the game on Wednesday night. And I, when I say right at it, I mean, as soon as the puck hit the ice, the gloves dropped. A fight consisting of all six forwards broke out in the first second of the game. This was the first of six fights during the first period, which is insane. This game was for fighting and revenge only. We all knew this. Tom Wilson ended up leaving the game halfway through with an upper body injury, but it's unclear how he got it. I'm sure you've all seen that picture of the Capitals penalty box. There was literally no space to stand. And if you haven't, Google it. It's hilarious. During the second period, Buchnevik, the man who this all started with, 
threw an illegal cross check to the head of Anthony Mantha, which was not cool. Don't do that. Illegal cross checks to the head. That's don't. But he got a game misconduct, which I think is completely invalid. Yes, he deserved it. But now think, where would we be if Tom Wilson got that? What if Tom Wilson was treated the same way? Within the first four minutes and 14 seconds of the game, 72 penalty minutes had been handed out. And the game ended with 141 penalty minutes between both teams in total. Tom Wilson needs to go. Go to Europe. Go to a different league. He's given chance after chance after chance after chance. And this is what it creates. And everyone is like, oh, it's good for TV ratings. It's good. I'm sorry, you're putting TV ratings above people's long-term health. You are sick. All of this happening just a week after Andrew Shaw has to retire at 29 because of concussions is just the cherry on top of how this is beyond messed up and anyone who thinks what's going on with that whole situation is okay and is oh it's just part of hockey it shouldn't be if this is what hockey is proud of i encourage you to reevaluate as somebody who's had five concussions maybe just don't it's not that hard tom wilson but maybe that's just my prerogative. Anyways, that wraps up my NHL segment. I am going to throw it to Christina for overtime. We have some very exciting stuff. We actually have a bit to unpack in overtime this week, which is kind of different. We'll start off with a Jays update because, yeah, it's my favorite. The Toronto Blue Jays are sitting at 15 wins against 14 losses following their small ball win against Oakland last night. And I actually wasn't planning on talking about this team this week because I wanted to talk about skateboarding. But after those late innings yesterday, I'm obsessed. I never cared too much for small ball when I was younger because homers and big runs just seemed like so much more exciting. But watching the preciseness and just finesse of the Jays that went down in the five run top of the eighth inning on Wednesday was the most exciting thing I've watched in a while. We saw Bichette stealing bases, players going from first to third. Charlie Montoyo is a baseball genius and it was a beautiful thing to watch. Also yesterday in baseball news, George Springer has been put back on the 10-day IL because of his re-aggravated right quad strain. I think a lot of us are really frustrated about it. We're really excited to be seeing everything that Springer had to offer for the Jays. It'll be fine. It's still early in the season. I think the lineup honestly is strong enough to uphold while Springer's gone. And Jonathan Davis was reactivated in place of him on the bench. I think it's just got to be disappointing for Springer because the Jays are supposed to be playing Houston while he's on IL, which sucks because I think it would have been fun to see him playing his old team. Literally last week, we were like, oh, finally, he's back. He's playing. He's starting off his season. And now he got the re-aggravated quad strain. I was so upset. I like got the notification texted Christina right away. And I'm like, can we talk about this? Because I just want to see my man play. If this podcast episode is proof of anything, clearly I got a lot of men. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This sucks, but you know, it is what it is. Casey, do you have anything to add? I mean, I don't watch baseball, but I am now invested in George Springer's long-term health simply because of this podcast. At the end of the day, it's good that we're prioritizing Springer's health, I think, and his body and well-being. Imagine Um, a sport that prioritizes players' health and bodies. I know, I was just going to say that. 
It's a whole concept. Wow. <laughs> in 10 days, maybe he'll be back and join us again. But that's it for the Jays for this week because we're going to talk about skateboarding. The 2021 USA Skateboarding National Championship Finals are happening this weekend from May 6th to May 9th, and it'll be an Olympic qualifying event, which is so, so exciting. Because for the first time, skateboarding is one of the new sports that will debut at the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games this summer. Just in general, this is a very cute look for the Olympics and for the sport of skateboarding. And I love to skateboard. Dua loves to skateboard. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm so excited. Like Christina said, I love to skateboard. I love watching skateboarding. Sometimes I get bashed because I like skateboarding so much and it was the argument of it's not a real sport because what do you really judge people on? Do you realize how much skill you require to be able to do what you have to do? These people are so, so talented and I'm so excited to watch skateboarding in the Olympics and the national champs. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun time, I think. So the championships actually started last month on April 9th, but they were held virtually through online video submissions, and they kind of narrowed it down to a top eight final for for the men's and women's park and street skate events. And the finalists will be competing following Olympic-style formats that we'll be seeing this summer, this weekend. And the difference between park and street skateboarding largely depends on the course designs for the events. Park skating is done on a hollowed out concave looking course with lots of curves and dome shaped bowls. They're pretty steep curves too. The top of the incline on the Olympic courses will be at an almost vertical angle. So the athletes will be judged on how much height they get by climbing those curves and the tricks they're doing while in midair. And at the finals this weekend, skaters are going to get three 45 second runs each and then their best run will count towards their score. Now, street skating it's kind of like what you'd normally see on a day-to-day skateboarding with a straighter course with handrails stairs slopes benches and walls and athletes are judged on categories like degree of difficulty height speed originality execution and composition of the moves and those all go towards an overall mark at the end finals will see skaters performing two runs each and five best trick attempts where their best four out of seven scores are going to add up the points that the finalists rack up this weekend will go towards world skateboarding rankings and Olympic qualifying. So it might be a great chance to get a sneak peek at what the sport's going to look like this summer. Unfortunately, Team Canada will not be making an appearance this weekend, although the tourney was open internationally. But we do have our national team of skaters ready to go for Tokyo, one of them being an 11-year-old boy from Toronto. Veda Fazio Everett will be competing in the men's park skating event. So if you're looking for somebody to look out for this summer in skateboarding, it'll be him. That's all that I have for skateboarding and we'll pass it over to Casey because she's got some stuff on the NWSL. Thank you. So yeah, to wrap up this week, we're going back to the North American soccer scene for a little preview of the NWSL's Challenge Cup final. So this is essentially like a repeat of what they did last year as a shortened season, except this time it's basically like a preseason tournament that actually matters. So we've got the Portland Thorns taking on NYNJ Gotham FC in the final today when you're listening to this. It's at 1 p.m. The Portland Thorns are a perennial powerhouse in this league. They're led by, as I said last week, Canadian icon Christine Sinclair. They've also got tons of the U.S. national team members on that squad. 
So I feel very conflicted when it comes to them because I hate the U.S. women's national team as a Canadian. But these women are so incredibly skilled and they just play some absolutely gorgeous soccer. Taking on Gotham, which is a little bit of a sleeper pick, not a team that a lot of people expected to make this much noise, but they seem to have with their rebrand come up with a whole new style of play. It's tough, strong, fast, and should match up really well with Portland's. I don't even know how to describe their style just because it's so consistent to what they are, but it seems to adapt to whoever they play. They play their game really well. They're really strong on the counterattack, but they can also make you pay. So make sure you tune in to that today. It's going to be a really good game. We're going to see a ton of Canadians in action. Kaylin Sheridan is Canada's keeper of the future, and she's in net for Gotham, taking on striker Christine Sinclair on the other side. I think that'll be a really fun matchup to watch, see if Christine can beat Sheridan the way she would in practice with the Canadian national squad. So make sure you catch that on Twitch later today, or if you're in the States, you can catch it on CBS Sports Network. But that's all we have this week for Ballbusters. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. It's a lot more content that we've had in the last couple of weeks, which has been super fun. And we will see you. Bye. Thanks. Bye.